Thank you, Danny. Good to have you guys all home, too. You were gone last week, and just me and the dogs. Now, last week, you remember, we, uh, we began uh, our study on, on, on uh, Judgment Seat of Christ, and we took 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I basically took a real practical approach to it. I, I want you, as we're coming through uh, chapter uh, 5 in 2 Corinthians, that's where we're at, uh, we come up against the subject of the judgment seat of Christ. And I talked about the week before that how absolutely vital that was to uh, your life and my life to understand it. And so, you know, there's two passages in the Bible on it that really make up the definitive uh, passages. And the first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's what we looked at last week. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When you get those two down, you pretty much have uh, every aspect of it that you need to have. And last week, I, 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 you know, I took the, the, the very practical approach to it. I showed you how the passage breaks down into eight concepts. Basically, all I did was just take how I broke it down into my Bible so I could understand it, and uh, I broke chapter 3 down into eight sections, and I went through those eight sections for you last week. And by approaching it that way, uh, you know, we learned a lot of great principles on uh, how to accomplish really all that God wants you to accomplish in your life so that the judgment seat of Christ, uh, you, you get through it the way that you need to. Remember I told you that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 really deals with the practical side of the judgment seat of Christ. How to ensure, as the Bible says, that you get a full reward. And uh, we talked about that in, in many different aspects. Today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, I want to I do the same thing with that chapter. I want to take these two aspects, last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and this week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and again, I want to break it down uh, into some sections, just like I have it in, in my Bible. And last week, we saw some great things. We talked about how that we are laborers together. We learned a great concept that that's what God has put us together for in a church. We work together, we labor together, uh, for the ministry's sake, to do what God has called us to do. We saw within that laboring together the concept of a husbandman, how that before we can really build a church, we need to build each other, and how we help each other and build each other up. We talked about the concept of being a wise master builder, how that you and I have to build uh, in our life all the things that make us everything God wants us to be. I told you how that much like the nation of Israel, uh, you're not building just your, your spiritual own relationship with the Lord, though you are, but it's more than that. You're building your future. You're building your, for your kids. You're building every aspect uh, when you build upon uh, the foundation that you laid. We talked about, I showed you the foundation. The foundation in your life and my life is simply the day you and I got saved. And the rest of our lives, we build upon that foundation, either gold, silver, uh, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And I showed you, I think it was very important, how that we, we don't mismatch those. You don't find a mixture of the two. You don't build a little gold, a little silver, and some hay. It's either one or the other. I think that's one of the most profound concepts that most of God's people lose sight of today. And we talked about that last week, so we'll not go through it again. I showed you the great concept in verses 13 and 14, how that uh, it uses the word every man's work and not the word works. Because uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, he's not going to be concerned with the individual things that we do many times to, uh, to make ourselves acceptable before the Lord or other people. He's going to deal with the work, 
The work is simply the day you got saved, you focus now on what God has called you to do, and the rest of your life becomes the work. The Christian life is not made up of a bunch of little works. The Christian life is a work unto itself where you, you do the work that God has saved you for. And great, great concept. Now today I, I want to uh, take another a practical approach, as I said, the Second Corinthians chapter 5. We want to do what we did last week, and uh, I have broken uh, this section down in my Bible into six different sections. And it's easy for me to, when I look at a passage, or I'm reading my Bible, or studying my Bible, or maybe somebody's asking me a question on Thursday night, it's easy for me to see that, break that down, and then it, it works for you. So, um, as I said, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're not dealing with the application here. We're dealing with perspective here. We're dealing with you understanding how it applies and it forms the attitude of your heart about that particular day. In this uh, passage, we get our perspective of that day, how, it should, how we should view it, how we uh, should understand it, most importantly, how we ought to relate to it, and it, then it forms our attitude. There's true great words in the Bible that uh, are the Christian life that are everything that you want to find. It's the word perception and the word perspective. And here we see what our perspective should be and our ability to perceive what this day is all about. You know, to perceive something is to be able to understand it, to grasp the concept. But to have a perspective of something is to understand how that concept applies to you. It's a lot like this. I'm an American. I live in America. I was born in America. You see, that's my perception. That is the fact that I perceive that I'm an American. I was born in America. But my perspective is different. My perspective is the fact, yes, I'm an American, but the day I got saved, I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things were passed away. All things became new. Now, my citizenship, even though I have a passport that says I was born in America, now my citizenship has changed. Now, I'm a citizen of heaven. Now, though I live here at 8308 Woodson Drive, and I, I live in Raytown and, and do all the things that other people do, but my, my perception now and my perspective is, is the fact that now I'm an ambassador to Christ. I'm, I'm in this world, but I'm no longer of this world. And those two words are key. When you get a perception and you understand and you can perceive something, then that builds, as you learn through that, that perception, you'll gain a, per, a perspective about what you're looking at. The whole Bible is built around that way. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 2 says uh, that the Word of God is to know wisdom and instruction and then to perceive the words of understanding. Once you begin to perceive something and you understand it, then as you grow in that, you get the perspective on it, you see how it applies to you. That's exactly what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 does for us. It gives us our perception. It gives us an understanding of what it is, and then we build from that and we get the perspective on it. Last week, I gave you eight principles on chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. With what you got last week and today's breakdown of the principles, we'll put it all together for you. Last week, you saw the practical side. Now you're going to form the perspective side that puts it all together. You understand now the concept. Now, in this chapter, you get the perspective and you get to perceive what it means to you and how you apply it to your life. You're going to find that throughout your Bible, uh, something like uh, 67 times, I think, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that that word to perceive or perceiveth uh, is found in your Bible. 
and uh, you find it in situations where it really shows you how that in critical circumstances, how that when you deal with life, your own life, or certainly in ministry, these examples will show you how the word is used. You perceive something, you understand it. When you get perspective on it, then you know how it applies to yourself. And that's really key in everything in life. The ability to understand and see those two words in what we do. The ability to see any problem that you have in your life. Or a situation in the Bible that lays out some great teaching. And you see how it applies to yourself. In dealing with people, it it, it gives you a great advantage. A perception and to perceive something and then to get the perspective on it in dealing with people always allows you to cut straight to the problem. There's a lot of window dressing people put in their lives that many times are designed by design to throw uh, people off. And when you, have, when you have the ability to perceive something through the biblical principles, and then you get the perspective on what you're dealing with, no matter what it is, it helps you have a better understanding how to deal with the problem and get straight to the problem uh, by getting perspective, uh, a perception, and then getting uh, perspective. So when you see how it comes, uh, uh, now you can see how it affects and how it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, how God wanted us to get it completely down through getting a perception of it and then grasping the perspective of it and to understand it and form our attitude of heart about that day. Now I want to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here and we'll pick it up the first 11 verses and then we'll begin to break it down uh, in our chapters here. Now here's what he says. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we do groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For uh, we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him." For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, uh, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for those that are here today. Pray the ones that are father that are out enjoying uh, the last time of their vacation and uh, will be coming back to Kansas City maybe today or tomorrow or this week before school starts. It's your blessings and safety upon them as they come. We pray, Father, and just pray you'll bless our time now today. Let us look and see and understand how we can apply these things to our heart and our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to show you how this passage breaks down in six aspects. And I think it's very important to put this together. I think that uh, this is going to help you. As I read the passage there, you can see, especially if you're kind of a young Christian, uh, it just kind of all runs together. He's talking about things. Uh, he starts uh, talking about one subject, and he changes to another one. And it's kind of hard to uh, put it all together. This is why when it comes to your Bible, and I had to do this for myself, 
what you need to break these chapters down. And I, I, you know, I, I made it a goal in my life many, many years ago, a quest to be able to break every chapter down uh, in, in, like I'm giving it to you here. When I read my Bible, I'm studying my Bible. Like I said, you asked me a question on Thursday night, it's right there. Now let's, let's look at this and let's see how this passage begins to uh, lay itself out. We'll start with, in my Bible, I have uh, six words marked. And these six words are the key to this particular passage about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, dealing with the judgment seat of Christ. In my Bible, I got them marked in yellow. And uh, it, it, the whole passage comes down. The first one's found in verse 3, and it's the word naked. The second one's in verse 4, and it's the word burden. The third one's found in verse 7, and that'll be the word faith. The one in verse 9, will, uh, it will be, the next one will be accepted. Uh, the fifth one will be in verse 10, that'll be appear. And then the last one in verse 11 will be the word terror. And when you break it down, you begin to see how that this passage, these are the key words that are in it. All right, let's look at our first section here. Let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3. He says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon uh, with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, there's our first word, and the first word we're going to talk about here in this passage is the word naked. Now, this passage tells us that at the judgment seat of Christ, that it gives the indication that some people are going to be found naked in that day. Now, that seems very harsh to a lot of God's people. Other God's people, it seems very bizarre to the average Christian. I bet if you talked about the average Christian outside this church and you began a conversation about the judgment seat of Christ and you made reference of the fact that somebody was going to be naked, they'd have no clue what you were talking about. Unfortunately, they probably wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about on the subject of the judgment seat of Christ. Many of them have never heard such a thing. But yet, uh, fundamentally, uh, it's true. And there's a reason for that. Now, next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up our section on the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm going to talk about the six things that will definitely get you naked at the judgment seat of Christ. But in spite of all of that, there's one fundamental issue here that I want you to see today, and this is vital. <clears throat> it's good for no matter where you're at <clears throat> in your spiritual growth. Very important that you see this. Now, fundamentally, God saved us to do a work. We know now the difference between works and the work that God saved you for. And getting naked will, will be the great reality for many of God's people. And I want to explain why that is. Now, there's a, next week we'll look at a number of other reasons that go along with this. But bottom line, end of the day, fundamentally, here is the reason why at that day uh, God's people or some of God's people are going to find themselves naked. And you find in this chapter, if you've been coming the last couple of weeks, Paul worried about this. This is not something that, uh, I mean, let me tell you something. If the greatest Christian who ever lived worried about it, <laughs> you and I had to be worried about it. And we had to be looking at it from, uh, from a, a pretty uh, uh, inclusive aspect to try to get it into our life and get it the way it needs to be. Now, getting naked at the, or being found naked at the judgment seat of Christ will be the great reality for many of God's people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says that God's people uh, like to cloak themselves in maliciousness. Now, that's a great verse. If you've been in the ministry any time at all or you deal with people for any length of time, you'll find that that's true. People are not always what they appear to be. 
especially God's people. Uh, God's people have an affinity for wanting to get saved, wanting to escape hell, wanting to get God's salvation, and then cloak themselves in a, in a, in a worldly cloak that uh, they can do still whatever they want to do, but they have a cloak that portrays that they're spiritual when, when they're really not. And nakedness at the judgment seat of Christ is a, is a great reality for, for many of God's people. I don't know if you know how it's used in the Bible. When we think of the word nakedness, we always think in a very bad connotation. And, and many times in the Bible, that's true. Uh, you're going to find that it talks about somebody's uh, sin or the sin of nakedness. And you just find that in the Bible. But there's another connotation to it that most people never grasp and understand. Nakedness in the Bible, in a good sense, is always a picture of somebody being open with God, somebody being honest with God. You remember the story of Adam and Eve all the way back in the Bible? The Bible says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Nakedness in the good sense is a picture of somebody's innocence, or at least somebody being honest before God. And when you find it used in that way in the Word of God, that's what it deals with. You're going to find that uh, Job talked about in Job chapter 1, he talked about naked was I born, and I'm going to go back to the grave being naked. And, and that's a, that, it, it, nakedness is always a, a picture of that. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 24, you got Saul. And Saul is one of the times in his life when he's doing what's right. And he wants an answer from God. And what he does is the Bible says that he gets naked and he stays naked all the day long and all night. Now, because he wants an answer from God. Now, him getting naked wasn't going to help him get the answer. But it's symbolic in what he's doing there, showing God that, look, I'm coming to you and I got nothing hidden. I'm coming to you and everything is open before you. And that, in a good sense, is what nakedness is all about. I'll give you the other example. The other example in the Bible is Jeremiah, and, uh, or excuse me, Isaiah. And you're going to find that Isaiah over there in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3. Now, he's one of the prophets, and he's coming to the nation of Israel. And what is he preaching to Israel? He's telling them that, look, you guys are not doing what's right. You guys are as far from God as you could ever hope to be. But I want to tell you something. If you would have went back in Isaiah's day and you would have walked down the streets and he walked down or you'd have dealt with the people that were supposed to be God's people, why you'd have thought that they loved God with all of their heart. They had all of the facade. They had all of the things that, uh, uh, that religions have. They had everything outwardly, but inside they had no use for God. They dumped God's word years ago. They had no use for God in anything. They're into Baal worship. They're into everything, but they're maintaining this kind of a facade that, that they're all right with God. In other words, Israel had cloaked themselves in the maliciousness of their sin. So you know what God did? God does what he always did. He told Isaiah, I want you to go down and preach to those people. And I want you to let them have it. Boy, he does. The whole book of Jeremiah is a series of sermons that he preaches to the nation of Israel. And the sermons are really good. And he doesn't pull any punches. You know what he preaches in every sermon? You know what he preaches? He preaches exactly to them where they're at. He tells them about their sin. He tells them about their hypocrisy. He says, you now have called good evil and evil good. He lays them out and tells them that they're phony, that everything they're doing in this false religious world has nothing to do with it. But you know what the greatest object lesson that the, the preacher brings to the, uh, the nation of Israel? For three and a half years, 
he preaches naked. Isaiah walks naked for three and a half years, preaching to a nation. You know why God had him walk naked? God had him walk naked so every time they heard him preach, every time they saw him, they would be reminded of the fact that they, uh, their sins are naked and open before God and they're trying to cloak themselves in some kind of religious hypocrisy. That's why. You see, Isaiah did what preachers ought to do today, and I don't mean preach naked. <clears throat> But, but he, 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 he reminded them of what their sin was. Because you, no wonder they hated him. You know what they did to Isaiah? They hung him down in a dung pit. You know what a dung pit is? They put cords under his arm and put him down in a dung pit. They wanted to get rid of him. They hated him. You know why? Because he reminded them that they were not as squeaky clean as they pretended they were. And he walked for three and a half years preaching naked. And every time they saw him, every time he opened his mouth, every time he said, thus saith the Lord, and let them have it, they were forced to deal with the fact that his object lesson of being naked forced them to realize that they were not where they needed to be, and they were cloaking their nakedness of their sin before God in their own self-righteousness, in their own religion. That, that's a great, great study in the Bible. It's an incredible thing. And the reason Israel had cloaked themselves in unrighteousness and they were not willing to get honest with God. They weren't willing to say, pull back the cloak and say, okay, God, the sin of my nakedness is before you and we want to repent. We want to do what's right. No, they wouldn't do that. They cloaked themselves. They cloaked their unrighteousness. <clears throat> they, they hid their sin. And yet <clears throat> you find that God's people do the same thing today. And that's why you don't find many preachers that will preach on sin today. And if you do find them, you won't find people that will stay in those churches very long. Or they'll, you have to be a weird breed to enjoy hard preaching and to enjoy uh, the object lesson of realizing that it's really hard for you to cloak your unrighteousness, that God sees it. You see, God's people, they fall into a state of being totally out of fellowship. And then instead of getting honest with God, naked before God, instead of coming clean with God, instead of showing God, hey, look, I don't have anything to hide. I'm naked before you. Here I am. Everything about me is absolutely in front of you. And you know where I'm at. You know I'm not right. You know I got these issues and I'm not hiding it, Lord. Everything is naked in front of you. They won't do that. Israel wouldn't do that. They just wouldn't. And they won't come clean. They won't confess it. And they hide it for years. And the Bible says this is a cloak of maliciousness. Now, here's the mistake that a lot of God's people make. And this is going to get you naked. So you want to work on those tan lines. <laughs> here's the fundamental reason why some of God's people will be naked at this judgment. Stripped of their cloak. Turn over and look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. This is one of the fundamental mistakes that so many of God's people make. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piecing e piercing either to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and to the joints and the marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All right, here it comes, verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things, all things, all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now that verse talks about the fact that seven things the Word of God does for you. That in itself is a great study. But look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes with him with whom we have to do. Now the quicker you learn that principle, the better off God's people are going to be. Right now, it's already naked and open before him. When I confess my sin to God and I got to get right with God, and there's lots of times that I do. You know what I do? I don't flower it up. I don't make it seem like a something that's not. I just talk real naked and open and plain with him about my sin. Do you know why I do that? Because it's already naked and open and plain to him. And we delude ourselves when we think that it's not. And that's what God's people do. And that, that's what happens. That's exactly what happens. We try to hide it. We try to, I mean, and you know what God does? God lets you go. He lets you go for 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, 30 years, and then bang, you hit the judgment seat of Christ. Hey, if you're not open and naked with our lives right now and the sin that we are today, we will be in the day we stand before him. And along with that, here's another problem that we all got. Now take your Bible and turn over to Revelation chapter 3. I'll show you another problem we got. The first problem we got is God's people won't be honest. They live in a fairy tale world. They live in a delusional world. It doesn't really exist. And they're walking around cloaking their life, cloaking their sin, doing what they want to do. And one of these days when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment seat of Christ, it's simple. He takes the cloak off and your nakedness shows. I mean, either you get it down here or you'll get it over there, but you're going to get it. Now, here's the other problem we got. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Now, you know, if you know anything about your Bible at all, that we're talking about the Laodicean church period. You know, you've seen it on our chart many times. We've talked about it in Bible study, church history, many, many times. You know that uh, uh, the church history breaks down into uh, seven periods. And the last period is the period that you and I are living in right now before the Lord comes back. And it's the last period, but it's also the worst period. And it's called the Laodicean church period. You may have heard that term. You may have heard preachers talk about it or, or heard it somewhere. Laodicea means rights of the people. And it's the church period right before Jesus Christ comes back. And it's the church period that everybody in it wants their rights. Nobody cares about God's rights anymore. Nobody cares about what God needs or what God wants or what God died for or what he saved you for. In this church period, and this is what you and I have to fight against. In this church period, it's the most selfish, self-serving church period with the most selfish, self-serving Christians you ever met in your life. And everything in the world is about them. Now watch what happened to this church. And under the angel of the church of Laodicea is right. These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, and that thou art uh, neither cold nor hot. I wish that thou wert cold or hot. You see that thing in verse 15? I know thy works. Plural. Now, this church has a lot of works, but this church does not have a work. You need to mark that. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou work cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. I counsel thee of I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Here it comes and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. Here it comes and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Now that shows you verse 17 the state of Bible Christianity in 2012 by God's own definition. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and the last one will get you right at the judgment seat of Christ, naked. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Then he says in verse 18, and get white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And the context of that is the judgment seat of Christ. This church has got more to fear about the judgment seat of Christ than any other period in church history. The shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Now, this is what Paul's groaning about in verse 2. He's groaning that when he gets there, that, that he'll be clothed and not be found naked. He's groaning about the fact that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You like word studies? All right, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says that we all must appear. Take that word and circle it. Then go back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 18, and it says, I counsel thee uh, of me gold, by, uh, gold in the fire and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Circle that one. It's the same word both places because the appear there is the appear back here. It's the judgment seat of Christ where you're going to appear at. And you see, that's what happens today. The shame uh, uh, and the sham of trying to cloak your sins uh, all uh, through your life till this day comes. And now, this in ministry, this is very important. Because if you were dealing with ministry at all with people, people have a, uh, just have an affinity of blaming their problems on somebody else. I always look back at Adam and Eve, and the first three chapters of Genesis, whether you know it or not, it, it defines so many things. And here you got Adam and Eve back there. God put them in a perfect setup, perfect estate. Everything is perfect. And uh, he did everything right, gave them everything they needed. And then the world comes to an end. And when, when God shows up to meet Adam and Eve and find out what went wrong, of course, God already knew, knew what went wrong. But when you come and find it, you find human nature at its best. You find now fallen man who God has done everything for, put him in a perfect estate. They told God to hit the road and did their own thing and now brought a curse on this planet. And when they're faced with what they just did, when they're faced with the reality of what they just did, Adam looks at God and he says, well, the woman you gave me, see, he put it right back on God. Now, when he asked Eve, what did you do? Eve blames it on the poor devil. He says, well, the devil made me do it, see? Nobody in that story wanted to say to God, look, you told me what was right. I screwed it up. I disobeyed you. And the mess that's around us right now is nobody's fault but mine. Nobody could do that. Nobody could do that. You know what they did on top of that? The Bible says that before they were naked and not ashamed, now they look at each other and they say they are ashamed, instead of coming to God and being naked and saying, now we have to bear the nakedness of our sin. Oh, no. They went and got fig leaves and sewed them together to try to hide their nakedness. You know, man's been doing that ever since. You know what Adam and Eve, they're the first cloakers. They were the first streakers, but then they were the first cloakers. 
They're the first ones that after they struck, stroke, streaked, or streaked it, or streaked it, uh, and, got, and got busted on it, now they got to go cloak themselves. They couldn't, nobody could just stay there in Genesis 3. Lord, you created this beautiful thing. You gave it to us. We abused it. We didn't use it right, and we made the wrong choice, and here we are. We got nobody to blame on ourselves and fall at his feet. Oh, no. No, God, it's your fault. And you're going to find that people uh, are the same today. Nobody wants to take responsibility for the thing that they do wrong, especially God's people. You go murder somebody, you can go out and kill 16 people, 20 people, and they'll take you in court and you'll get some good slick lawyers and they'll say, well, they're mentally ill. They didn't really know what they were doing, so they're not responsible. That's the way it works today. Nobody wants responsibility. Nobody wants accountability. And when it comes to the Bible and Christianity, you've got to have a responsibility and an accountability. Adam and Eve didn't want it. God's people today don't want it. You know what they'll do? They'll blame it on you. They'll blame it on you. And God just lets that thing go. You know why? Because there's a day coming where God's going to rip off that cloak and everybody's going to see what the bottom line was. That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Now, the last one's in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Here's the final warning in your Bible about this day. It says in verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, and here it comes, keepeth his garments, lest he should walk naked, and they should see his shame. See that thing? See his shame, the shame of a child of God and God's people taking God's salvation and living their lives the way they wanted to. Somebody told to keep their garments because somebody's going to be naked. So the first section, our key word is naked or nakedness. And now we understand fundamentally why that is, why there are going to be some people naked. And all you got to do there is put a little note by that. You don't have to put everything in there I just gave you. You don't have room for that. But all you got to put in there is simply this. When we, people are naked at the, great, at the judgment seat of Christ simply because that all through this life they won't get naked before God and confess their sin before God, they cloak themselves so in that day God removes the cloak. If you don't get naked before God here, then you're going to get naked before God over there. It's just that simple. That's the fundamental reason. Now the second section, and the second section will be in verses 4, 5, and 6. And the word here now is going to be grown. He says, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, there's your word, being burdened, not for that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon, but that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath given, uh, uh, given uh, unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are present from the Lord. Now, in this passage, uh, uh, we begin to see uh, perspective become pretty clear. What he's saying here is uh, he's comparing this old world that he's in now to the world to come. You know, the longer a person is saved, and the longer you as a Christian continue to grow, and the more you develop yourself, and the more you stay in fellowship, the clearer what I'm talking about it becomes. And one thing uh, being saved should do for you, uh, the longer you're saved... I'll tell you what it should. And if it doesn't happen in your life, then there's a problem. And the longer you're saved, if you're growing in the Lord and you're doing what God wants you to do, the number one thing that should happen is what he's talking about here. The longer you're saved and the more you grow, the more distance you put between you and the world. Amen. And boy, that's a true statement. And you groan when you don't. 
you get to the point where you literally hate this old world. And this world has got some beautiful sunsets, got some beautiful sunrises, got some beautiful things to see. But this old world, my friend, is the source of everything that slows you up to being what God wants you to be. I heard a preacher one time preach years ago, and he said, you know what? He said, if God would give me one prayer, if God would give me one prayer that he would answer just like that, if God would come down and say, you know what? If you pray any prayer, I'll give it to you. If you pray for a million dollars, you got it. If you pray for this, you got it. If you pray for this, you got it. If you pray whatever you pray, I'm going to do it right at that instant, that second. He said, I wouldn't even have to think 10 seconds on it. He said, my prayer would be, oh, dear Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, and get me out of here. You know, when he talked like that, a lot of God's people got sick. A lot of God's people get that sick feeling in their stomach because you don't want him to come back. This old world is a source of my fight every day. It's my struggle every day. It's, 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 I get so tired of it. The battles, the ups and the downs, my failures, my disappointments in life, everything. Uh, and you know, the thing I love about heaven and the thing that I think makes it, when you grow to a point that makes this world get so dim and heaven so clear, is the fact when we finally get to heaven, when we finally get there and we get out of the filth of this world. Oh, I know you think it's nice. I know you think it's wonderful. I know you think it's fun. I know you think it's exciting. That's because you have nothing to compare it to. Where do you see what he's got for you over there? But for me, it's simply this. Finally, finally. After 62 years in this old sewer that I've been living in, finally, I'll be in a place that whatever I think, whatever I do, and whatever I say, and wherever I go, is going to be 100% absolutely pleasing to him. To me, that's heaven, you see. And the more longer you're saved, the more you develop yourself, the closer you get to God, and the longer you walk your walk with him, you ought to, you ought to get closer to that every day of your life. You ought to look at that thing and the world ought to get farther away from you in everything you do. That's just the way it works. All right, let's continue with two here. Look at verse six. Wherefore, uh, therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And that's so true. Listen, nothing is more obvious or evident in this old life than a child of God who's saved, but has a love affair with the things of this old world more than he does with Christ. First John chapter two, verse 15 says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I'm telling you, nothing is more evident in this world. Nothing, if you know what you're looking for. Nothing is more obvious than a child of God who is saved but loves the world more than it loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know you don't know this yet, and when we get into counseling uh, here after the first year, these are a lot of things that I'm going to teach you. You're going to learn. I talked about perceiving, perception, and perspective. Uh, have you ever noticed, maybe you don't know this, but you can, you can absolutely, if you know the Bible principles, uh, you can tell when a person is heading for uh, a bad relationship as an affair or get into a bad relationship with somebody else's husband or somebody else's wife. It's a terrible thing, and it happens all the time, but it, it, you know what? The Bible's very clear. If you have perception and you have perspective, you can see it coming a mile away. And, and I'm not going to get into all of the things that you look for today, but I'll teach you those in counseling because it becomes obvious. You can't miss it. It becomes like, it becomes like the Goodyear bimp flying over your house. Because 
the thing that is so simple about it is, is simply this. You see it coming a mile away. Unnatural affection towards someone other than your spouse. Wanting to be around the other person. Creating scenarios where you guys get together. Uh, getting hang out together. Creating little situations that you can find excuses to be together. And the next thing you know, Houston, we got a problem. It's the way it works. When the affections is not directed toward the proper spouse or the proper person, it becomes glaringly obvious. I've seen it all my life in dealing with people. But yet, I say that to say this. It's the same way with God's people when they set their affections on the things of the world. When a child of God loves God and turns their love toward God more than they love the world, more than they do God, it becomes glaringly obvious. You know what Israel's problem was in the Old Testament? You had to read the book of Hosea one time. Bible says in the Old Testament that God looked at Israel as his wife. You know what Israel, as God's wife, did to God in the Old Testament? She stepped out on him. She committed adultery against him, spiritually speaking. He talks about in Hosea. He talks about, he calls Israel the, 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 the whorish wife. He calls her, in fact, he had Isaiah walking around naked. You know what he told Hosea to do as an object lesson? He says, marry a wife of whoredoms. Well, that was a violation of the law. God said, Hosea, you go take a wife of whoredoms. And then you go around and preach to everybody and bring your whore wife with you. And when everybody looks at you and says, why are you as a man of God married to a whore? You look back at them and say, why are you God people leaving your husband and committing adultery with a whorish Babylon and all that crap that goes with it? Pretty good message, wasn't it? You see, God, he, 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 he looks at those things. And the nation of Israel, they, the whole book of Hosea is how that Israel, as God's wife, stepped out on her husband, and now she's committing spiritual fornication with Baal and all the other religions. And if you're a child of God this morning, you're a spouse unto one husband. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You're called the bride. He's the bridegroom. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb coming. There's a marriage of the Lamb coming. What in the world are you doing stepping out with the world when your husband is coming for you? Amen. See how it works? Oh, boy. But that's how it flies. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, great principle. If he be then risen with Christ, are you? It says, if you then be risen with Christ, are you? Are you saved? Have you been risen with him? Then seek those things which be above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on the things above, not on the things of the earth. That's what happens. And he's saying down in this chapter, he says, you know what? He said, I, I, I groan. I'm groaning to the fact that someday I'm groaning that I got to stay down here in this mess. I'm groaning that I gotta I gotta put up with this stuff. I'm groaning that every day I gotta see this or I gotta see that or I gotta deal with this or I gotta deal with that. Oh, there's nothing in this world he says that I love. I hate this place. This place is nothing for me. Oh, I wish I could go home to be with the Lord. That's where he's at with it. That's where he's at with it. Well, the third section, this will be in verse seven. For we walk by faith, it says, and not by sight. Now, here the word is faith. Now, this is really the key to it all, as far as I'm concerned, in getting through this judgment. Walking by faith. Simple little thing. <laughs> Try it sometime. 
Yet when I say that, it doesn't mean that you just blindly follow God into the unknown by faith. And that's really, you get that from a lot of people. I've had people all the time, well, I could never accept the Bible uh, by faith. You just accept through a Bible by faith. You, you, just, you, just show, you just accept that Bible as being the Word of God by faith. Let me tell you something. I don't accept the Bible by faith that it, without any facts on it. That Bible, is, that Bible can be proven as the Word of God with a mathematical scientific certainty. Somebody says, well, I don't believe in God because you can't show him to it. Well, you don't breathe in, believe in air, but you breathe it in. <clears throat> well, I don't know how God, I don't know how, a, I don't know how a brown cow can eat green grass and give white milk, but he does. Right. People are nuts. <laughs> well, I just don't, you, you know, I just, you accept God by faith. There's no proof there's a God. Prove to me there's a God. I could prove to you there's a God in 15 minutes, but it wouldn't do you any good. You know why? But the problem is you wanting to believe in God or not believing in God. The problem is you, you're a demonic individual that doesn't want nothing to do with anything that's clean. That's your problem. You like the filth you live in. You see, walking by faith. Walking by faith means you have a clear set of principles and guidelines for everything in life. And you have faith in those instead of faith in the world. That's what walking by faith means. Most of God's people are simply, uh, they, they never get here. The pull of the world is too strong on them. Now, I, I don't know if you know this or not, and some of you do, because we've talked about it before. When we're going to get into it, we get into counseling. But in the Bible, you know that there's seven people who commit suicide. And it's a, it's a great study. I, I don't think you're ever prepared to really understand why people uh, commit suicide and deal with people who, you can't deal with people who have, <laughs> but people who, who, who want to until you understand it. You have seven people in your Bible who committed the final act of taking their own life. But as you study it, you learn a great truth. Five of those people represent physical taking of your life. Two of those people represent spiritual suicide in your life. One of them, Samson. I'll let you think about who the other one is. In other words, a Christian may never take his own life physically, but many Christians have committed spiritual suicide, and they're just as dead. They're just as dead. Now, i got to say that many Christians do commit physical suicide, but I can guarantee you, before they ever drop the hammer physically or put the rope around their neck or plug their hose into their car into their thing or whatever they did or took their pills, they committed spiritual suicide first. Spiritual suicide always comes first before physical suicide. But there are some of God's people who commit spiritual suicide who live normal lives. My 40 years of ministry, I had eight people that I remember committed suicide. Eight of them. Expect one or two more here any day, but uh, I had eight of them. And I can say this for all eight of them, all committed spiritual suicide before they ever committed physical suicide. You know how you get there? You know how you get to the point where you commit spiritual suicide? It's simple. It's not hard. You just have a whole life where you don't walk by faith and you walk by sight all of your life. That one verse is probably more profound than any other verse in the Bible that tells people why they got the problems they've got. In time, when you walk by sight and not by faith, you make so many bad choices. You make so many bad mistakes. And there are some choices you can make that you can escape, but there's some that you make that you can't escape. And there's some that you can make that will destroy the rest of your life. 
it'll alter and change everything about you. But I've seen God's people that have made so many bad choices in life. I mean, they've got the wrong spouse. I mean, I've seen them to the tune where they've been married three or four times. You know, if you went through three or four marriages and you haven't figured out what's wrong with somebody yet, you better stop and look at the thing. There's something wrong here. I mean, that may be a harsh thing to say in the world that we live in, but I'm just telling you the truth. God never intended it to go that way. I mean, he never did. Somebody asked me, I told you before, somebody asked me, well, you do a lot of weddings. And I said, yeah. You also do a lot of funerals. And I said, yeah. They said, what do you like doing better? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I like doing funerals better. I like doing weddings. Oh, really? Why is that? I said, because I've done lots of weddings that never stayed done, but I only did and never, all the funerals I've done always stayed done. They all stayed dead. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man, it's just that way. I mean, time you make so many bad choices, you get into so many bad situations, you actually put yourself in a scenario that there's no way out and you're trapped. I'm telling you. You say, well, God can fix it. Really? He didn't do much for the eight people that I told you about over a while just a few minutes ago. You want it? God can fix it? Really? You know, it, the issue is not, can God fix it? Of course he can. The issue is, will he, will he fix it? And of course, in many cases, he won't. You want to get proof of that? Go on a cruise. Get on those big old cruise ships. When he gets out there about 3 a.m. in the morning, you're on that ocean and there's no moon. It's as black as could be. Go out on the fantail. That's the end of the ship, by the way, fantail. And jump off the end of that thing, drop about 10 stories down to that water and see what happens. You think God will get you out of that? Why, before you get the three screams out of your mouth, that boat will be five miles away. It ain't going to help you. There are certain things in life, there are certain choices you make that God's not going to come down and get you out. You know why? Because God doesn't intervene in your will when you turn your back on him. He'll let you go. He'll let you go. And listen, when you go 10, 15, 20 years and you refuse to walk by faith and you walk by sight all the time, you'll get, you'll get into some things, brother, that you'll never get out of. And you're done spiritually. Your elevator is going down, not up. I've seen it happen all the time. I've seen it happen all the time. No, I know some of you don't like that. When you start talking like this, God's people get nervous. You see, they don't like that. I mean, you start talking about the truth and reality and people don't like it. They get nervous about it, you know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, but I'll tell you this, and you better learn it. When God's hands is for you, nothing will go wrong in your life. When you walk by faith and not by sight and you're doing what the Word of God says, nothing's going to hurt you. Nothing's going to stop you. I don't care if the whole world's against you. Why, he told the nation of Israel back there in Joshua chapter 1, if you do three things with my word, if you get my book and stay in my book and you do what I tell you, he'll tell them there's not a nation out there that'll ever touch you. I don't care if it's 20 of you and 5,000 of them, you will reign over them and you will beat them and you will whip them. And nothing will ever stand in front of you ever as long as you do what's right. But he said, on the other side of that, you don't do what's right, you'll never get anything done. And boy, do you ever see that with Israel. But you see, it was God's people too. In other words, when his hand is on you, nothing will stop you. But when his hand's against you, nothing will go right. Nothing will go right. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's a hard concept for God's people to get today. We live in a world where it's all feely touchy and everybody's happy and everybody thinks it's all good, you know, and everything that's bad is of the devil and everything good comes from God. You don't have a clue about a relationship with God. Job chapter 9 verse 4 says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered. Nobody. 
You see, when you quit walking by faith and you start walking by sight, God's hand turns against you. You start making your own choices. You start making your own decisions. You forsake the Word of God. You're just like the nation of Israel. Look at them in 606 B.C., coming down now captivity of Babylon, going to be taken away from their land, going to lose everything they had. And they lost everything they had, but 400 years early, you know what they lost? The most important thing, they lost their relationship with God. But God let them go 300, 400 years before he came down. By the end of that 400 years, they were in such a mess, they were in such disarray, they didn't even resemble anything that God had for them. A lot of God's people get that way. You know why you get that way? Because you, you walk by sight, not by faith. You refuse to do what God wants you to do in your life. That's just the way it is. I told you Thursday night about a great story over there in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 about Asa. Asa was a king of Israel. And he starts out being a good king. He starts out doing what's right. He takes down the idols. He takes down the groves. He takes down all the things that he's supposed to do. But just like a lot of God's people. A lot of God's people get, go to church sometime. They get plugged in. They start doing good. They start doing this. They enjoy it. But then something happens. And something happened with Asa. He fell out of a relationship with God. He fell out of fellowship with God. And so he comes to the point where the Bible says that he gets a disease in his feet. And when he gets a disease in his feet, the Bible clearly tells you that he doesn't take it to the Lord. See, he doesn't come to God and say, Lord, I screwed up. Uh, the reason I've got a disease in my feet is because of the fact that I'm not doing what's right. He didn't do that. He cloaked himself. And the Bible says he went to the physicians instead of God. And he died. He died. He died. And boy, I look at that story like that, and I think of a thousand Christians in my life that were just like Asa. And they started out good, and then something happened. And then they get a disease in their feet. That disease in their feet is a picture of your walk with God. Walk in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another. And when you get the disease in your feet, it affects your walk with God. Instead of getting honest with God, you know what they do? They go to a psychiatrist. They go to a shrink. They get on Ritalin. They get on Prozac. They get on some kind of medication. They go someplace else and coming to God and saying, Lord, what's wrong with me is me. It's not because of this person or my circumstance or this situation or the preacher or the church or this or that. My problem is me. And until I fix me, nothing is going to get fixed. And then God can do business with you. But Asa didn't do that. You know what Asa means? The name Asa means healer or cure. Didn't give you that Thursday night. I was saving it for this morning. Asa means healer or cure. Say, what do you mean by that? He's a picture of a New Testament Christian. But I'm telling you this. You have everything inside of you to fix whatever problem you got if you're saved this morning because you have the Holy Spirit of God. You can heal yourself with that book and that Holy Spirit, but you won't do it. God's people never do it. No, it's always easier to blame it on somebody else. It's always easier to run to another church. It's always easier to go do this or go do that. It's always easier to, to make somebody else the fall guy for it. And of course, that's, that's, that's Asa. And uh, I'm telling you, there's a, there's a, these guys, long before they ever committed physical suicide, they, they, they committed spiritual suicide. Well, look at the fourth one, verses 8 and 9. Now, the key word here is accepted. He says, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now, this is a great principle. He's saying here, I'd rather be home with God, but I'm gonna, I got a job to do. Now, you want a definition of perspective? Here it is, man. Here is, here is the perspective that we ought to have. 
We've already seen how he wanted to be home to heaven. But now he puts it in perspective. The perspective is, I'd rather be home with God, but I know I got a job to do. So in spite of my desire to be with God, I'm just going to do the job till God comes and gets me. I'm going to stay put and do the job that God called me to do. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wanted to go to heaven so bad he couldn't stand it. He hated this world. He hated everything about it. I guarantee you when they come to cut his head off and they cut four guys' head off before him and they took him out screaming and holding on to the thing and scratching for every ounce of life, when they come and got Paul, God got those two executioners on each arm and said, come on, boys, let's go. I'm almost home. <laughs> he wanted out of that place. He knew what was waiting for him. But his perspective was, I got a job to do. I got a job to do. He says, I want my life every day. I want to live my life just like I'm in his presence. That's what he's saying. And your goal and my goal every day in this life should be simply that. He says in verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. You know what a lot of God's people's problem is? A lot of God's people probably worry more about being accepted by their friends than they do about being accepted by God. A lot of God's people worry more about being accepted by the people they hang out with that they shouldn't hang out with. A lot of God's people get more worried about being accepted in, in, in some circle more than they are being accepted by God in everything that you do. He says, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. In other words, you can't live one way here now and expect to be accepted over there. You got to get it straight in your mind that right now you live with, with him just like he's going to live when you stand before him. Most people think, I heard a guy say last, somebody said a couple of weeks ago, you know, wouldn't it be a great if the Lord was here? He could straighten it all out. He is here. He lives inside every one of us if we're saved. This idea, again, that, that bad concept, the idea is the fact that, uh, you know, that uh, um, God is not accepted of him. He's living in you. He sees everything you and I do. He hears everything you and I say. He hears every, sees every thought that we have. And we're in his presence every day. And you see, the goal of your life and my life is to come to that point where uh, we're accepted. We're accepted today. We're doing today with him just like we'll do when he's here. That was Paul said. Paul said, you know what? I know I got to stay here. I don't want to stay here, but I know I do got to stay here. Because I got a job to do, but I'm going to tell you this, Lord, if I got to stay here, I'm going to live my life just like I was with you. And every day of my life on this planet, I'm going to distance myself from the world and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be accepted of you here so I can be accepted of you over there. Because the key to being accepted over there is the being accepted here. And boy, that's a great principle. It's also a scary thought. Well, the fifth one, verse 10. Now, the key word here will be appear. Did I give you the key word accepted? Okay, I did. Okay. Now the key word here is going to be appear, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now this is another blockbuster. This is like the one last week. You should have saw the people's faces last week when I talked about, <laughs> when I talked about work versus works. I mean, it just made some people absolutely, you could tell they were just green at the gills. I mean, they, they, either, they, they, either they had a bad piece of pizza or they were not happy. I'm not sure which. But that thing, it's a, the Bible's such a reality book. 
And the thing I love about the Bible is the greatest principles about the Bible are hidden in little things like this, that if you don't pay attention to exactly what the Word of God says, you miss them. That little aspect about work versus works. Well, there's God's people to do all these little nice little works and so they can, they can don't have to go out and do a work for God. They don't have to live for God. They'll just give something to this or they'll do this or they'll give that or you need this or you need that. But their own life, 90% of it is all for them. Well, here's another one, boy. I mean, here's another one. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You see what he's saying there? God fixes those who want to keep it all for themselves right down here. And then when they die, they want to leave it all to God. That verse says you don't get anything, any credit for anything after you're gone. You only get credit for what you do in the body. You know why he did that? You know why he said that? Because he knows God's people will keep everything they want for themselves, do what they want, live what they want, have everything they want now. And when they don't need it anymore and they die, they're going to leave it all to some God church or this or that. And they don't need it anymore because now they're dead. God says, you just missed the boat. He reads our attitude of heart and knows how phony we are. He says, the only thing you get credit for is what you did in this body. After you're out of this body, it doesn't count anymore. It doesn't count anymore. God's people will figure out every way they can to get around that book and still make themselves think they're okay in God's sight. And at every turn, you'll find the Lord waiting for you with a verse just like that. We have met our match, gentlemen, when it comes to dealing with God. An unsaved man spends his whole life trying to outthink, outwit, outmaneuver God, and at the end of his life, he hits him square on face-to-face, eye-by-eyeball at the great white throne judgment. And God's people do the exact same thing. They'll spend their whole life trying to get around every principle, doing what they want to do, giving the minimum, keeping the maximum, doing everything they can, just giving enough to get by and thinking that God's okay with it, right up to the judgment seat of Christ. What a deal. Well, the last one, verse number 6, verse 11. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, and the key word here is terror. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's what I'm trying to do today. I'm just trying to persuade you. And I'll tell you how I'm trying to persuade you. But we are made manifest under God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. I'm working on your conscience this morning. That's what I want to do. I want to persuade you in your conscience to live the life that God wants you to live because of what he did for you. And for some of you, it'll work, and some of you, it won't. Now, that verse says this day, will be for God's people, the terror of the Lord. Now, the holiness crowd teach, and they actually teach this, that uh, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a literal whipping. I've heard old guys preach years ago that uh, God's going to whip you, <laughs> God's going to throw you down the cellar steps and just about break all your legs and everything, you know, and all that stuff, and that's what they teach. Of course, that's totally not true. I really, uh, I wish it was. It'd be a lot easier probably than the day's going to be. But the judgment seat of Christ, I think the worst thing about it, why is the terror of the Lord? It's going to be the end of our delusion as God's people. I can't think of anything that, that shocks a person more and strikes terror in them is when rudely coming to the thing that what you just thought was, was not. And I think that that's, a, that's exactly what it's going to be, the end of our delusion. Uh, you know how sick and scared uh, messages like this make some of God's people? 
uh, old Baxter McLean was an old circuit riding preacher. He used to say to his crowd, he says, if a two-bit, tin-horned preacher like me can get you people scrambling or squirming around your seats like you're sitting on a nest of bees, he says, what are you going to do in a day when the holy eyes of a holy God pierce down through your naked soul? <laughs> oh, boy. You betcha. And I can get up and preach messages and makes people sick to their stomach, makes them angry, makes them mad. And I'm just a two-bit, half-hearted sinner trying to convey God's burden and God's message. What are you going to do in that day when you stand before Him? What are you going to do all day when, when you stand there in that day and the cloak comes off and you come to the reality? In that day, it's His day. It's all about Him and what you did for Him after He did it all for you. That's why it's called the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. You see, right now, you choose not to see that. Right now, some of God's people refuse to see that. And they'll blame it on anybody else they can. But in that day, it'll be just you and him. You know, in my preaching, or really anybody's preaching, I guess, that preaches, in my preaching, no matter what I preach on, I'm basically asking two questions. And I don't ever know if you understood the psychology of behind a preaching or behind a message, but that's really what it is. I don't care what message I'm preaching. I don't care what the subject is. If you're an unsaved person and you're under the sound of my preaching or anybody's preaching that's doing a halfway decent job preaching, then you're faced with a question. And that question is, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ for your soul? That you're faced with that. And it doesn't matter what I'm preaching on. I can be preaching on Mary Magdalene and the, the seven unclean spirits. I can be preaching on Lazarus coming out of the tomb. I can be preaching on Noah's Ark. I can be preaching on telling a, how about all the different animals. You know all you're going to get out of it? You need to be saved. You need to be saved. You need to be saved. You know why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit of God does. So any message is going to basically have uh, two questions that's always asked. Now, Many of you can answer that question, so the question doesn't come to you. You say, I'm saved. But there's a second question that always comes out of any sermon anybody preaches. And, uh, it's, and if you don't live right and you, get, you, you don't do what's right with God, I, I, you know what your problem is? You get tired of hearing that same question. I don't blame you. I would too. You get tired of God's Holy Spirit asking you the same question because that's all the Holy Spirit allows you to hear. This is Bible psychology 101 in preaching. I mean, I could preach a hundred different sermons. I could preach on everything you could think of. And you're going to hear the same question asked. From time to time, you know, you hear people say, well, you know what, I, I don't like going to church anymore. I don't like going to Bible anymore because, you know, they just talk about the same thing. You're out of your mind. I can't even remember the last time I preached the same thing Sunday on Sunday. I can't remember the last time we talked about the same thing in Bible study. Last Bible study was just, I mean, it was filled. Every one of them is. That's not the problem. You know what the problem is? It wouldn't matter if we had 10,000 Bible studies, if I preached 10,000 sermons. When you're out of fellowship with God, you only hear one question. Why aren't you doing right? Why aren't you right with me? Why, aren't, why call me Lord, Lord, not do the things that I ask? Why aren't you right? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Why have you taken my salvation and done nothing with it? You know what? That's all you hear. So we could talk about, we could have a Thursday night Bible study. We could talk about, we could talk about church history. We could talk about Proverbs 8. We could talk about, uh, you know, this stuff over here. We could talk about manuscript ever. We could talk about this. Somebody said, how'd you like Bible study? Oh, it was the same old stuff. Yeah, for you it was, because you know what you heard? All the Holy Spirit of God lets you hear. Because any sermon comes down to two questions. Where's your soul at? And where are you doing with God if you are saved? And if you don't answer that question, it's all you get out of the sermon. It's all you get out of it. It's all you ever hear. And that's got to wear on you after a while. I don't blame you. 
That's all ever people ever hear. Uh, you know, that's all they ever get. They're trying, and so that's why, honestly, that's why you're going to find that, you know, they, they get an attitude about things. That's why you're going to find, that's why you're going to find it in time they jump from church to church to church to church. I don't blame them. They're tired of hearing that question, but they'll never answer it. So they'll go someplace else, they'll start over fresh, they'll say, oh, a nice, great place, here we are, we're going to have it. And after a while, that guy starts asking in the Holy Spirit, you see, it isn't about who's saying what. That's the mistake you make. It's about when you won't do right, and you won't do right by God, the Holy Spirit of God, no matter where you go, will just follow you, and there it is, Sunday morning, Thursday night, same question you've got to be faced with. That's the way it works. They cloak themselves in a false spirituality. I mean, they have the Bible in one hand and a pack of cigarettes in the other. They have a Bible in one hand and a beer in the other. They have a Bible in one hand and they wonder what's wrong. They wonder why they ever can't get ahead in anything in life. And every time they come to church on Sunday morning, you know what happens? Every time you put your cloak on before you leave, you get your cloak just right, and you come in here and sit down or some other church, and a guy gets up there and opens that Bible, and for 35, 40, 50 minutes, you know what they do? They try to pull that cloak off of you. That's why some of you show up tight this morning. You're holding on to that cloak. I'm tugging on it. Holy Spirit of God is trying to pull it off so you get naked in front of him. You're saying, oh, no, I'm holding on to my cloak, boy. You ain't getting my cloak. Don't tell me about it. I know how it works. I've been a bigger cloaker than all of you in my lifetime. I know how it works. They cloak themselves in a false spirituality. They do what they, and every time they come, that cloak gets ripped off for 40, 45, 50 minutes. This is why it happens. And see, right now, it's, it's, it's somebody else's fault. It's the preacher's fault. It's the church's fault. It's your fault. But there's a day coming when it's just going to be them and God, and we'll find out whose fault it is. Now, I, I preach some hard sermons. I think any preacher worth their salt needs to preach hard sermons. I think preaching is preaching. I think that's what it is. But, you know, I mean, some, sometimes people get so... I don't understand it. Sometimes people get so angry and so mad. But you know what? May I ask you a question? I mean, to me, this is just basic stuff. If you're doing what's right with God and you're where you need to be, what does anybody preach? How can that make you mad? I mean, you might as well go out and get a big sign on you and say, I'm out of fellowship with God. I'm mad today. I mean, Paul said it when he was dealing with his crowd. He says, have I therefore made you my enemy because I told you the truth? People don't want to hear the truth. But that day is coming. When you stand before the one who's called the word of God, Revelation 19. And at that day, all things will become naked and open under the eyes with whom we have to do. Right now you cloak it. I try to pull the cloak off. You won't let me. In that day... He'll take it off. You either take it off here or he takes it off there. And that cloak of maliciousness will finally be stripped away and the shame of your nakedness will appear. In that sobering moment of reality, we'll come to the real perspective of our life as a Christian and the responsibility we had and the responsibility we so cleverly sidestepped down here. We'll come face to face with the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we'll do then what we should have done now, come face to face with the Word of God right here. 
and got naked and stripped off the cloak and let him see everything the way it really is because at the end of the day, he already knows what it really is. But oh no, we got to cloak it. We got to hide it. And finally we get to that day and all of our spiritual facade, all of our spiritual goofiness, we stand there and God comes up and just rips that cloak off. Bible says, and it's a great reality, that at the name of Jesus, every, name, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The great reality is that you'll either bow your knee today and make him Lord of your life in this life, or you'll keep it all for yourself and you'll cloak yourself into all that maliciousness and unrighteousness just like Israel did, but he'll strip it off there, the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll bow your knee and confess there. You see, it's not a matter of whether you will or whether you won't. It's just a matter of when you will. You'll either do it now under a God of love, well, it's got to something for you to do, or you'll keep it all to yourself and you do it then. But you will do it. You will do it. It's not a question of when you will or where, whether you will, but when you will. Now, with all of that, look at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have also obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my presence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. That verse says that you and I are to work out our own salvation. That doesn't mean you work out how to be saved. The people he's writing to are already saved. It means after you're saved, you work it out between you and him what you're going to do. Are you going to be somebody who took God's salvation and then thumbed your nose at God and then lived your life the way you want to? Are you going to take someone who took the agony of Christ's death on the cross lightly and you say, well, I thank you for saving me, but I'm going to go with my own deal and do my own stuff. Is that the kind of Christian you're going to be? Is that how you're going to work it out? Or are you going to realize like Paul said that, you know what, he saved you for a purpose. He did something in your, for you that gave you the eternal life and now he wants something back for it. But you have to work out your own salvation. But you're going you're gonna to be naked one place or the other. You either be naked under the word of God now and let him see everything the way it is or he'll get you naked there, and everybody, the whole world will see how it really is. Omel Sabaka used to say something that I never really understood until many years later. He's my father in the Lord, as many of you know, and he died this last December. And I used to hear him say it with never really an explanation, and it's something that I guess maybe he wouldn't even been able to give me an explanation. The explanation has just to come about getting into ministry, but he used to say to me, you know what? I would never be in the ministry. I'd never preach another sermon. I'd never deal with another person. I'd never deal with another circumstance if I didn't know for sure that the judgment seat of Christ was coming when there's a day coming where God's going to straighten everything out. And boy, that one, and I never understood it when he said that. Now being in the ministry some 40, almost 40 years myself, totally get it. They're going to, people are going to blame you for everything. There's people going to take their failures in life and they're going to try to make them your failures. They're going to do everything they can. They're going to say everything they want to say because they want to justify and cloak themselves. And you know what? And if you don't get it straight and you don't realize who you're doing this for and working it for, that can knock you out of the ballpark. And the thing that kept that old boy straight, and boy, he, he was in some battles in his life, but the thing that kept that old boy straight, that he knew when the day was coming, when God was going to even it all out and everything the way it was was going to come out. That's a great thought. That's a great concept. Well, now you've got both aspects of it. 
You got the practical side that deals with the how-to. Now you got the perspective side. Shows you how to view this day. Next week, we'll come back and we'll finish up probably next week, and I'll bring you through the six things that are going to get you naked at the judgment seat of Christ and be your checklist. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget, next week is restart. 